Welcome to the Curator Salon podcast. My name is Geeta Joshi, and in today's episode, I am talking to Matthew Burrows. Matthew is the founder of Artist Support Pledge, a movement that is really taking traction on Instagram. Welcome, Matthew. Hello. So, Artist Support Pledge, it's going really well on Instagram. I think I looked this morning and that uh, hashtag had been used like over 25,000 times already. It's only been going yes. for a couple of weeks. How, how did that all come about? Were you personally affected by the coronavirus lockdown or at the point where exhibitions and fairs were being cancelled? Yes. I mean, I was literally sitting at my dining room table having just received emails and messages uh, with various events and things that were being cancelled um, and, you know, in the forthcoming two or three months. And I sat there and I thought, okay, that's not good because if they're all cancelled for the next three months, at the end of those three months, it's not all going to start up straight away. Um, at the same time as this, I was getting messages and seeing things coming up on my phone from friends saying, I've just lost my tech work and all my exhibition that was due to open tomorrow is cancelled. And I thought, hmm, this is going to be very difficult for artists because we, it, there's, there's, no, there's no way out of it. All of the economies that artists use, so if you're not, you know, a lot of artists work in gig economies, so they might be teaching, lecturing, uh, mentoring, working as tech, in tech work in galleries, all that was either had stopped or was about to stop. Um, so I, I, was, I sort of sat there thinking, okay, uh, I've got to do something, but I didn't know what it was. And one of the things that I've been running now for 12 years is something called ABC Projects Atelier, which is um, a kind of peer mentoring uh, program for kind of established and sort of mid-career artists. And I do it about sort of six times a year, it's a couple of days a time. And I've, over the years of doing it, I've developed an ethos for it, so a culture for it. And the ethos is one of trust and generosity. But if you build a culture of trust and generosity, critical rigor and honesty is so much easier to deliver. If you don't have that trust and generosity between artists and participants and their public, whoever else, then you can't, be, you can't be honest in what you do. You end up actually just providing answers you think people want to see or you uh, are being told to give or other people's answers because that's what you think is going to gain you traction. Only when you feel that you have the trust and generosity of your, your peers, your public and the rest of it, can you be truly engaged in what you do. So I've always had that kind of ethos and I literally just took that and thought, okay, that's, that should be the ethos. Whatever I do, that's its ethos. And then I went for a run. And that's when I had the idea. <laughs> so it took a few miles, but it kind of came to me eventually. Um, and it took a bit of fiddling around for sort of, you know, the afternoon after that, just sort of thinking through the processes and the logistics of what it is and how it worked. But I... I initially came up with the idea that the, because it had to be generous, it had to be a kind of gift in some way. It had to be giftedness to it. So I thought, okay, I've got to invent a gifted economy. Uh, I mean, it's been gifted economies throughout for, for centuries and centuries and centuries before, um, before our current system. So it's not a new, a new idea. But I thought maybe I could develop something that had a kind of act of generosity attached to it. But of course... I mean, before that, actually, just to backtrack a little bit, I sort of thought, okay, if, it's, if, I've got, if we're going to develop a means for artists to make a living now, tomorrow, not in a month or two or three months' time, um, we had to use assets we already owned, um, and they had to have a very quick 
rate of return. So that implied straight away that it had to be cheap. Uh, and that then fit quite nicely with this act of generosity and thought, okay, well, if, what if I sell my work under the market value and um, create a kind of very rapid market and see if I can create a market like that for peers, colleagues, and the rest of it. And I sort of sat with that idea for maybe half an hour and then I thought, okay, well, that, but that just seems a bit too much like our current market, only it's cheaper. And it didn't seem to be very novel or interesting or exciting. So then I thought, well, okay, well, if it's going to be a, a generous economy and a gifted economy, there's got to be a gift on the way in. So you've got to be generous to enter that economy and there's got to be a gift on the way out. So you've got to reach a point where you give back. So I thought, okay, if the limit is 200 pounds, and that was a sort of limit, I thought, well, that's kind of painful enough. It's low enough to be painful. And it also gives an awful lot of people below 200 pound access. So even if you put on stuff on for 20 or 30 pounds, you know, anyone could do that. But actually, it means that if you're already an established artist and you're working as an artist as I do, actually 200 pounds is, is well below your market value and it's quite a big ask to put your work down at that price. So for me, it was sort of, okay, I can contribute to my colleagues, uh, friends in the art world or to artists I don't know by that very simple act of just saying, okay, I will, this is what I will do. And when I reach a certain limit, I will donate back in. And then it was a matter of deciding what that limit was. And initially I sort of thought, okay, if it's 200 pounds a limit, I've got to get 200 pounds back. And I, I kind of thought, okay, 10%, we'll get to 2,000 pounds, then you put 200 pounds back in. But I sort of thought that didn't feel right because I thought a lot of people will, will struggle to get to 2,000 pounds. And also it didn't feel generous enough. And my, I think really my philosophy on that was that if generosity is genuine, it has to feel slightly uncomfortable. It has to be slightly painful to enter it. So you can't, it can't be easy. If it's too easy to give the money away, then it's not generosity. Um, so I sort of lived with it for you know, maybe a few hours and thought, you know, you know the 20% feels kind of slightly painful. So that's probably sufficient, but there's enough potential to earn money in there. So getting to £1,000 and giving £200 away, £800 profit, um, for a lot of artists, that, that would be a big deal. That would be something that they could meaningfully make a difference on their lives. You know, it's paying the rent or, you know, something. Even if that was, you know, over a period of months or it didn't even get close to that, even if they only got to 200 pounds of sales, that's better than nothing. That was my view, is that something's better than nothing, so just do something. And then it was just a matter, I tested it out on um, my family just to see what they thought, and they didn't win too much. Um, so I thought, well, okay, can't be that bad an idea. And then I literally just posted my first print um, whilst I was sitting on the sofa watching House of Cards and um, wrote the text, didn't really think very much of it, um, posted it on Instagram and then uh, to the following morning I was one sale off making my first pledge to buy another person's work. So I thought, oh, I didn't expect that. I, you know, I thought maybe in a week I might be. Um, so I looked on on the hashtag, and there was another two artists that joined it already. I thought, oh, that's great, brilliant. I don't, unfortunately, I quite like their work, so I thought I'm more than happy to buy one of their some of their work. So um, by I think by midday or something, I can't remember when it was. Now I, I'd made my first pledge. I bought uh, two pieces by another artist, uh, and at that point. Um, I thought, well, maybe it's time to kind of go a bit further. So I invested a bit more time and effort into it. 
that's such an amazing story. So you didn't have collaborators then before you launched, you just sort of made up the hashtag and set off, is that right? It was very, very low tech on every level. And um, on, I think by the end of the first day, it was moving, I was getting more than a message a second on my phone. My phone was permanently lit up with messages for about 48 hours. Um, I actually <laughs> naively tried to answer a lot of those messages only because I sort of felt like if it was going to work, I had to, had to gain traction quite quickly. And it also, it felt like it sort of, almost like a, a tsunami coming at me, a wave coming at me, it was ginormous. And I, it was too big to duck under it. So I thought, I've just got to ride it. I've just got to ride this wave. And I thought, it'll last a day or two, and that'll be it. I thought, if we can get to 1,000 people, that would be amazing. Because that's 1,000 people pledging to earn 1,000 pounds. So, you know, that would be potentially a million pounds of cash in, and then obviously 200,000 pounds back into the system. So it'd be 800,000 pounds of money generated if they all made their pledge. Um, and by the end of the first day, we were, we were at 1,000, I think. Maybe it was the next point, I can't remember. But then it kept every day, it was doubling in size, or it was going up at least 1,000 a day. Um, and, and not only that, but then I was getting messages back from people who said, I've already made my pledge. So I wasn't the only one who had made my pledge quite rapidly, there were quite a lot of other people. So they were, it wasn't just that each post was a potential pledge. Sometimes a post was two or three pledges, depending on what was on the post. So each post could be worth two or three thousand pounds. And some weren't worth anything because some people, I guess, didn't sell anything. Um, but I was amazed how many people were. And I, I was very surprised by that because it wasn't just that it gave traction to artists to show their work and get it out there. It gave accessibility to just anyone to buy art. And I think that was empowering in both directions. It empowered a kind of a sort of patronage and empowered artists to sort of show their work and feel like they were on a level playing field with artists at any level. I think that's really, that was a decision I had to make very quickly at the beginning when I started, people started asking, can I, you know, can I show this type of work or can I show that type of work or can I show craft work on it or can I show, and I just sort of went down the line of, okay, this is a generous culture. In a generous culture, everyone's welcome. And that was the simple, it was just a simple, it was the simplest way to deal with everything. It was just, okay, what would be the generous um, response to this question? And that was always my kind of relationship to everything that came in. And, it, and even things like, you know, when I got people wanting to give me money for things and donate things, it was always, okay, is that an act of generosity or not? That was always my kind of punch card on it. I said, okay, if it is, yes. If it isn't, no. Um, and I would try to turn everything into an act of generosity. So if somebody came along with, I'll give you money with, uh, but with conditions, I would sort of try and turn that into a into a generous act rather than an act that was actually buying something. Um, and that was that was tricky. That took some navigating because I was doing all this at, at a pace and also not prepared. You know, I literally got up to go to the studio for the day. I mean, in the day, I was you know halfway across the world dealing with people in in um, Australia or even at that by that point, end of the first day. Um, so that was a very strange experience. The overwhelming response, and I mean 99.999% of it, was unbelievably kind-hearted. The goodwill gestures were amazing. I just didn't see that coming at all. I thought if I get a bit of that, it'd be great. 
Um, but I, you know, I think when anything becomes successful, when there's, then there's that sort of traction that gains very rapidly, especially in a, in a situation, in a crisis, where people are feeling fearful and insecure, they want to grab hold of it as some way of gaining some security for themselves. And I completely get that. And that's why for so many things, I just, my response was always, yes, come get on board, join in. And I thought, I'll worry about the rest of it later. I'll worry about whether that was a sensible decision. That's another point, really. So it was just, it was just better to get as many people on the boat as possible and say, you know, if you can get something out of this and you can benefit, we all benefit. You know, because actually you're giving stuff back in anyway. I mean, the nature of the beast is that whatever, whatever they brought to the table, they are putting money back into the system. And there was, you know, some people came to it. There were a lot of kind of artists or very established artists said, oh, it's not for me. You know, I, I don't need the money. It would be hypocritical of me to do it. And I was no, it's definitely not. You, you need to be there because you're generating traction within that market. You're bringing money back into it and you're bringing footfall. They're bringing people to it to see other people's work. And certainly, anecdotally, a lot of the people I know who bought work, who aren't, who aren't artists, said they went on, they just had a look, and by the second day they bought three or four pieces because they went on to see one person's work, and whilst they're there, they saw two or three others. So generating, you know, that, that sort of, the fact that there was a cr across-the-board kind of breadth of artists on it I think was something I really tried to propagate. And I think, I mean, a lot of people are very nervous about that, especially people who've got reputations to protect and financial positions to protect uh, and market values to protect. But, you know, as I do, but my view was simple, that this is a crisis. And if I have to put that aside for three months, so be it. You know, I might take a, might take a blow because of that, but actually many more people are taking a much bigger blow than I'll take. So it was just, it wasn't the question I really thought a lot about. Um, admittedly, I'm not, you know, in the same position as some people where actually, you know, it would almost be impossible for them to put their work on at that sort of value. But I also sort of think, well, actually, that just makes that act of generosity all the greater. And so it just builds into that sense of goodwill. Um, and I think, you know, the responses I was getting from people very rapidly were, you know, I've sold one piece and that's great. They were so happy to sell one piece within like the first day or something. But it wasn't just the fact that it sold one piece that was significant. It's that they felt empowered by the message and empowered by the community and the goodwill of that community. And that they were, you know, finding artists all over the world they had never heard of within seconds of just going on it that were interesting and exciting to them. Um, and yeah, there was, you know, Students on there. There were there's probably school kids on there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't mind. You know, it's 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 not meant to be a system that makes judgments and discriminates. It is just a place you can go and look at things. I, I think of it a bit like if you go into an art school and wander around the studios, there'll be all sorts of work in there, all sorts of different work and all sorts of different levels. Some will be really good and really ambitious, and some will be a bit troubled and be struggling and not really sure what they're doing. Some be more talented than others, but they all get the same space. And that's exactly what I've done. I've given everyone the same space. No one can charge more than 200 pounds. So there's no hierarchy. Yes, some people will generate more income because they'll sell more, but they're putting money straight back in. And you can't make huge amounts of money on it because that limited 200 pounds means that how many pieces of work can you actually make for 200 pounds? Not many. 
Um, and just the logistics of selling it takes time. So there are limits into how much money you can make off it whilst maintaining any sense of integrity. So there is a sort of leveling out of the, of the economy, which I think is tremendously empowering for a lot of artists and sort of levels the guard for others as well. So that's pretty amazing. I've noticed that the campaign or movement has really empowered a lot of artists to actually step up and sell their work. A lot of times people were just hiding behind, you know, their social media profiles and not actively coming out and saying, you know, I've got work for sale, which is something they could have been doing long before coronavirus. And I think that community that it's uh, given them has been you know, quite incredible. What sort of feedback have um, artists given you? Well, I, I very, rap- very rapidly after starting it started to get feedback, which I didn't expect. And um, some of it was, was extraordinary. You know, people who had you know, lost their jobs um, that day, you know, had lost everything. And I mean, one guy had, uh, messaged me to say that he was doing his PhD. So technically he was a student and was unemployed, he'd lost his part-time job. So he had no way of earning any money. And within the day, he earned enough to pay his rent and buy another artist's work who um, he was you know, friends with. So not only was he extraordinarily grateful that I dug him out of a deep hole quite quickly, but he felt absolutely amazing about helping another person in the same position. Uh, and largely that was true of nearly everyone I heard messages from. And so, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I got messages from all over the world and from some countries where, you know, the, the £200 limit was, was a big deal. So, you know, because economically, I mean, I, I set this off thinking it would probably affect a handful of people that I knew in the southeast of England. That was my sort of ambitions. Um, didn't think it would go anywhere more than that. I certainly didn't think it would go national or international or global. I mean, that wasn't on my radar at all. Um, I, I didn't even know that was possible, really, in d- doing something like this. So for that to happen so rapidly, and so um, over that first probably 24 hours, it made me realize that the effect this had on people who were living in countries where you know, the income from art was impossible for most people uh, in any normal circumstances. And even one sale was a big deal. You know, so it wasn't, for them, it wasn't about whether they could make the pledge or not. That, that, you know, that was a distant dream, but they loved the idea. They loved the idea that maybe one, at some point in this um, campaign, they could reach the point of buying somebody else's work. And that's really, actually, I, that, I didn't really expect that i didn't expect that the artist's patron would be such a powerful idea but it's been really compelling for so many artists yeah i mean for a lot of people it was you know okay i paid the rent i put food on the table but i also feel this sense of extraordinary empowerment to be part of a kind of movement that is puts kindness at its center rather than you know getting and greed and um and sort of a sort of building a hierarchy. I mean, the art, we, you know, the art world is extraordinarily hierarchical. I mean, it likes to pretend it isn't, but there are a lot of gatekeepers in the art world. And suddenly the gatekeepers weren't there, or they were hiding, or they weren't, didn't know what to do, and it leveled everything. And, I, you know, I couldn't have done this six weeks ago. But when coronavirus started spreading and everything started shutting down, it created this sort of cultural vacuum uh, and an economic vacuum. 
And I realized at that point that I could either fill that back, you know, we could fill that back in with fear. We could just kind of wrap our arms around what we have and protect it. Or we just sort of say, okay, well, let's do something else with it. It's an opportunity to think differently, to create a different set of values, to, to create an opportunity for people who don't normally have opportunity and to create new models for doing things. And I've always felt that the way the art market works, although I work in that world and that's the world I make a living in, it never really felt like a very good match for art. I mean, art existed in, in culture for hundreds of thousands of years that weren't like art. And actually, the, in, a, in effect, our sort of capitalist economy of art today is only 300 years old. So it's a very, very recent phenomena. And a lot of artists feel very uncomfortable with it, even the very successful ones. It's never really a very good match. But it's the way we operate and it's the way we work and it's seemingly within our current culture the only way that we can really make ambitious work and for it to be funded without very slow time-consuming mechanisms of funding um, so i don't necessarily i'm not saying we shouldn't have that but i suppose i've always felt slightly frustrated that there wasn't another way of generating a kind of an economy for artists that was more sustainable didn't demand huge amounts of investment and didn't have layers and layers and layers of people taking money out of it so that the artist at the end earns virtually nothing. I mean, it, I was only just by coincidence a week or so ago reading, uh, no, so a week before this all started, reading uh, something about the arts industries in this country. And I think the arts industries in this country are worth 10 billion. And if you think of it that way, you think, well, how much of that 10 billion goes to artists? Hardly any. Or if it does, it goes to a very, very small minority. So, you know, the, the, in effect, the econ economic model that I've maybe unwittingly created here is probably not worth huge amounts when you compare it to 10 billion, but the money goes straight into an artist's pocket. So it generates an ability for artists to be sustainable. And if they're sustainable, that means they can be doing what they should be doing, which is making art and not doing something else because they can't afford it or feeling frustrated because they can't afford it. And, you know, a lot of my early conversations with the commercial set with commercial galleries, when it started to take off, there was a little bit of nervousness um, because, okay, this could be threatening. This could be, this could undermine the market. And, you know, I was very careful with that. I mean, I purposely put it low enough that no work that goes on this site is probably ever going to be seen in the commercial gallery because it's just a too low a price range. That work just sits in an artist's studio, get, gathers dust and gets stored. It never actually sees the light of day. So all I was doing really was creating an economy for a product that's already there and making it a very simple set of transactions. Buyer approaches seller, buyer buys work, seller gives work to buyer. The only person in between is the postman. That's it. So it's a very simple kind of model um, and, and makes it very effective. Because if you think, even if you say you have a, say, a drawing or a print at 200 pounds, by the time that's been photographed, framed, shipped to a gallery, put on the wall, admin done, and all the rest of it, the amount of extra money you've got to layer on top of that 200 pounds is so much that the artist is still only getting 200 pounds. And the gallery really isn't getting much in return because the transaction for a 200 pound painting is still as expensive as it is for a 20,000 pound painting. 
or drawing. So in many ways, I was taking, taking a place, taking a point within the market that was not being used at all. So it wasn't, wasn't a threat to the current commercial market. And actually, my point to galleries when they started asking me this was, well, this is good for you because if your artists can, and you're, the emerging artists you're supporting can have a more sustainable practice that they can invest in time-wise and materially, they're going to make better work. If they're struggling to make work because they're working five days a week in a job just to pay the rent on the studio, to work in the studio for half a day and to be shattered when they're doing it, that's not good for anybody. So it's, it's a win-win, I think, for everyone. I mean, whether it has a sustainable legacy, I don't know. That's... I think that's such an incredible story. I think it's really empowering so many artists to actually step out and sell themselves. What I found curious about that, what you were just saying, though, was that you almost felt like you needed to justify, justify any of it to, to galleries, you know, that they felt like they could sort of wade in and think that you might be taking an income away from them. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I felt I sort of had to justify it more that I sort of, I didn't want people, I mean, it, you know, I really definitely wanted to create this on a kind of cultural generosity. Cultural generosity does not create the division. And the art world, despite what it often says and its high and mighty moral values sometimes, it, it's very good at creating divisions and it's very good at creating hierarchies. As long as you're at the top, you can have them on the high ground, but everybody else has to wait their turn. And I just wanted to have a level playing field. I wanted everybody just to say, okay, I have access to something. I can sustain a living. I'm not saying that everyone's really good at what they do. I'm not saying that, you know, that there still isn't a place for discrimination in terms of deciding whether something's a really kind of culturally valuable thing in itself. But it doesn't mean that, I, I don't think that should stop people having the opportunity to give it a go. You know, I like doing other activities that aren't art. I don't know. <clears throat> I'm no, I'm not an expert at them. I'm not very good at them, but I like having a go at them. <laughs> so it's enjoyable to have a go at things. So I'm, in effect, just giving people the access to have a go at it. And, you know, yes, we'll have to make decisions about what the outcome of that is. But I think that's a, you know, I, I just think that creates more, not only liquidity economically, but a kind of more fluid culture i think it creates a culture that it, it empowers people that might not feel they're empowered by it whether that is the artist or or the collector or the person who i, mean, I suppose one of the things that i've only really started to think about in the last few days is not only is this giving you know a generation of young and, and actually established artists opportunity to be more sustainable it's also potentially creating a new generation of collectors because if people are starting now to buy work and starting to see that there's something really life-affirming about having art in your home where you, that you live with and you, they, they furnish your imagination on a daily basis, that is just good for everybody. And that, they might not ever move out of that collector base. That might be their limit financially. But if it's a, you know, an emerging collector who is... Um, developing their collection, developing their taste and developing their economy in themselves, that might mean that they are the collectors of the future. And collectors don't start nowhere. They start by buying something. And nearly all good collectors start by buying something when they're young. And they develop that appetite for looking at art, appreciating art and investing in it. So, you know, I think it's, I think for the, for the art market generally, I think it's probably got a long-term legacy that I 
didn't think about when I started it, but well, I'm hoping it does. No, I totally agree. I think there is a lot more people, I mean, people are generally just spending more time on social media at the moment, but it's certainly making, turning more, you know, bystanders into art buyers, which is incredible. Mm. Um, my next question was actually going to be about what is your desired outcome for, for this movement? If we were 12 yeah. months in the future, looking back, what do you think, um, what do you think that would look like? I suppose when I started to do this, I, I had no idea of having a legacy or, I mean, my, my plan really, my ambitions really were as far as, could I generate a little bit of money? Could I help a few friends and colleagues? And then it kind of grew to sort of thinking, maybe we could get through two or three weeks of this, maybe a month. Uh, maybe we could actually stretch the pandemic. Maybe we could actually get right through the end. I'm still, that's still my ambition. Is can we get through it? And can, can this as a concept and as a movement help artists across the planet to generate some kind of income? You know, that'd be variable. I understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm realistic. Um, and I still think it's got, despite the numbers and the figures that have been thrown at me, it's, it's still relatively small when you think globally. So there's still, you know, it's growing probably by about 2,000 every day. I mean, how many of those are new people to it or repeated pledges? It's hard to tell. I do have somebody looking at the algorithms of it at the moment, so I hopefully we'll get that feedback fairly soon. Um, but in terms of a legacy, I suppose that has started to crop up over and over again, uh, not only because people are asking me, but because in my own head I'm thinking, actually I didn't expect this traction, I didn't expect this response. It has actually worked, and it's worked in a way that I would never have dreamt of it working. So, you know, I've got friends, colleagues, and mentees of mine who have made more money in a week than they normally make in a month and they're wondering why they get, they're going to go back to a day job at the end of this now obviously i think this is probably very time specific in terms of its success at the end of the three months and when everybody's not sitting on their sofa twiddling their thumbs playing on instagram i guess it will slow down but because as an economy and as a market it's actually quite a small market there aren't that many products on it they're cheap relative to normally how much they would cost. And actually, the, because the market is global, there's so many people could access that market. So arguably, I don't know. I mean, I've, got, you know, I've also got people who know about economics looking at this, and, and so far they seem very excited by it, but I'm, I'm no expert in economics. Um, and you know, potentially, I mean, there will be a point, I guess, where the returns start to diminish. But potentially it's a mechanism that artists could sustain their uh, lives by more regular income, more regular sales, where they're not having to pay out huge amounts of commission or costs on, um, extra costs on, um, you know, the, even just the shipping. I mean, the shipping costs, you, you've had those on, so, you know, you're not, you're not having to duck money out of your income all the time, which, you know, ends up artists doing, so they might have a show. By the time they get to the end of the show, their profit margins, if they have any profit at all, is minor. Um, and that can be, you know, that's a, force, a source of frustration for so many artists because it's extraordinarily difficult to get through that period and to get over the hill of that uh, and to gain any kind of foothold into the market where you're not sort of compromising to such a degree that you're not really empowered by it, you're disempowered by it. So the power structures actually oppress the creativity rather than opening up creativity. 
I think for me, looking at it, I think there's also a way for a lot of artists to create a more sustainable career from this. So, you know, if they've already, um, you know, maybe growing their mailing lists or they're nurturing, you know, new people that are coming through their accounts, maybe they did buy the £200 work, but they, you know, could become return buyers and return collectors of that artist's work. So really sort yeah. of growing their audience base is, you know, it's a great way to have that career be sustainable beyond you know, coronavirus itself. Yeah. I think there was a couple of other things I wanted to talk about, which is slightly more from the buyer's perspective, which is myself. I have bought artwork during these last couple of weeks under the artist support pledge. And one of the things I noticed quite a lot was there's a lot of people um, copying and pasting your, you know, very nicely written caption and um, which is great because it really summarizes what it's all about. But I did want to encourage listeners because I know a lot of our listeners are actually, um, you know, sort of selling through the uh, pledge as well. Yeah. Personalize their story. You know, if they have been affected by, a cancellation or a postponement or a, of a fair and exhibition or whatever it is to actually, um, you know, personalize and tell us about their version of what happened. You know, what was the fair that they were planning to take work to or the opportunity that's been taken away from them. And so as a buyer, you know, I am as much as I like the artwork and as much as I support the campaign, I'm also really buying into the artist and I really want to kind of put that across and say, you know, that's how you're going to get me to pull out the credit card because I know more about you. You've shared your story. You've taught me about your work. And, and that's what I want um, artists to really, you know, use this um, campaign better, more effectively, and certainly, you know, for longer term success as well, to use this time to actually nurture the audience if their accounts on social media or wherever are growing. Then come back on and remind us who you are and, you know, share bits from your artist statement. Tell us about, like I said, the fairs or the exhibitions that you were looking forward mm -hmm. to. All that kind of thing. Take us into the studio. You know, I mean, virtually you might have some photographs um, of, you know, maybe in your uh, the process, but also things like um, images of past work, you know, or exhibitions you've had, because that's going to tell me that you've been around for longer than I've known you. And, and that's always kind of adding value to my understanding yeah. of that artist. So I think there's um, a bit more um, content, really, that artists could be using to really um, improve the experience for the buyer. And that's me, yeah. sort of, you know, sort of um, looking at it from my perspective as a buyer. And I'm sure that's uh, true of a lot of people as well. So I think, um, so that was one thing I really wanted to share. But the other thing was, you know, this campaign, it's very much an Instagram thing. However, I think artists really ought to be using it any place they're visible. So if they are on Facebook or have got a mailing list, you know, I know art, a lot of artists only like to use their email list for when they've got events, you know, come to my show, here's some free tickets, here's opening night. And I would love for people to, you know, start reactivating their mailing list and telling us about this, you know, telling people in your own words what the Artist Support Pledge means, putting it on there that you've got this available work and putting it on there what you are doing, you know, not just the selling side, but maybe you're, I don't know, experimenting with new things or even just, you know, the story of um, moving your studio from 
you know, where you had your studio, because you can't go there anymore, to the kitchen table, you know, there's some more personalized content that you can make that makes you much more relatable because we're all in isolation, really. And I think that would just make it much more relatable. And this is a really great time and a great way to nurture, you know, those people on your mailing list and just generally nurture that audience to learn more about you so it makes it much easier when you've got new work available for sale. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the things that I mean, we're starting to work on that now, I put it on, actually on my website, there's a kind of frequently asked questions page which you go straight onto when you go onto it now so that people can go there, look through it, get things advice like that. And one of the things we ask people to do is to um, post their stories, is to actually either make a short um, video piece just to tell of things like you're talking about where their context or where they've come from or the, or the work they've bought. Because actually one of the things I noticed quite quickly with this, after maybe even after a few days, is um, I set up, because initially it was done off my own account, so at Matthew Burroughs, that was it. And then after a few days, I realized that was going to be, it was going to take over my life. <laughs> so I had to create another account. So I created um, the at our support pledge account. But then I realized I had to get people onto that account, I had to sort of uh, get people from my account onto that account. And that took probably a week or so to stop really getting that, any traction on that. So in the meantime, what I had to do was use my account as a storyboard to tell everybody the story of what was going on, what was happening, and that, you know, I'm not just a name out in the ether, that I'm an artist too. Um, I'm just a guy in the studio making, trying to make his work, to try to tell that story. And then what I realized is when I started backing off from that a little bit, it started losing a little bit of traction. And I, it, and I realized then that actually the fact that it was somebody in that studio making this happen was actually really empowering and motivating for other artists out there because it wasn't an institution, it wasn't a well-funded organization. It was just somebody else like them who made, had a, an idea and then just took a step forward and did it. Simple as that. And I was lucky that I did the right thing at the right time with the right set of kind of skills that, you know, I didn't know I was doing all that. So it, you know, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't think it was going to be as, as sort of successful as it was. So one of the things that I've started to do this week is to do exactly what you're doing by actually showing on my site, on my account, that story is to kind of, I try to sort of vary each day. So I'll put a couple of, two or three posts of my work that might be for sale. A post of just some of my work isn't for sale, but I just talk about it. So I just give them a bit of context that this is where this work that you might want to buy comes from. This is, this is why I'm doing it. This is what it's about. This is what I'm interested in. But also I put little sort of stories out there and contextual stuff that gives a bit of context to how, where our support pledge came from culturally for me. You know, why, why this idea matters to me and why I'm generating it. You know, it's not just an idea and it's not just something that, you know, I came up with in a room full of PR people that seemed like a good response to the pandemic. It's something I passionately believe in. And because of that, I think I can, I, I've got the motivation to drive it and to keep it going. And I'm not just, I'm not willing actually just to kind of go, oh, I don't care. Because I do, <laughs> I do care. And I can't, you know, I am trying to slowly kind of take my foot off the pedal a little bit so that it, it, it drives itself because that's the whole point of it. It is meant to be a self-sustaining movement. It's not meant to be driven by an organization, but 
I'm realizing that there's a certain amount I kind of have to do to make that happen. But um, on my website, although we do sort of ask people to put their stories up and post them on the at our support pledge, all they do is put at our support pledge on that story and it will go onto that. Um, I've noticed it hasn't really been happening very much yet. So I w that's one of the things I'm, is on my to-do list this week is to start trying to kind of um, propose that people kind of post their stories. I mean, to a certain extent, people are starting to do it anyway, but I'd like to see a little bit more of it. But it's about trying to do that in a way that is um, that supports, doesn't overwhelm the system doesn't support and, and supports everything else. Because I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm realising that is every time I launch something or do something, it's like it sends a ripple through it. And I've got to be prepared for the, as it, the ripple flows back to me, what that's going to mean. And I've thought through what that will be and what information they need to, to, to enable that to happen. And it's already there. So I'm not, I'm not sort of, as I was when I started this, sort of fighting it off completely unprepared. I've tried to be a couple of days ahead of myself now. So I'm, I've got everything up and running, prepared to post in advance so I can respond to those ripples as they come back in my direction. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to see how the rest of this project unfolds and watch it over the coming weeks and months. Um, I will add all of the hashtags, to support pledge and everything else all in the show notes. Thank you, Matthew. Okay, thank you, Gita. Thank you. The Curator Salon hopes you enjoyed this production.